Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. We had a great show with Professor Susan Mickey last week about coronavirus and have another one coming up in the next couple of weeks as well uh, where we'll be talking to Dr Nizreen Alwan and Professor Susan Mickey about the effects of long COVID uh, from a behavioural and epidemiological perspective. So tune in for that one and we'll, we'll also be talking about um, you know, how lockdown's going for lots of people, hearing from Independent Sage through Susan and just trying to sort of give you an overview of, of any behavioural strategies we can use to help each other get through lockdown. I just wanted to remind everyone that we're recording this podcast on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, which is an organisation that you can join today for £25 if you're working, £10 if you're not. And essentially, it's a network of people that are passionate about behavioural and social sciences and how they work in the real world. So it's a great opportunity for you if you're uh, early on in your career or even if you're later on in your career to join a network full of other passionate people that you can learn from, talk to, get advice from and even work with on your behavioural science or um, you know, behavioural insights projects, whether you're in industry, academia or in the health industry or public health. One of the things members like most is the free or cheap access to a range of events throughout the year, but there's also a, a whole host of other advantages to being a member. So head over to www.bsphn.org.uk for more information and to join up to the BSPHN. Today we've got a great show with Ivo Vlaev and uh, I've promised for a good few months now to have put this show out so apologies again for the delay in getting this out to you but I really hope that you enjoy the show because I think there's a lot of great insight in here from a really experienced professional who's worked across uh, academia, policy and industry. So uh, over to the show and I hope you enjoy this this, uh, show with Ivo Vlaev. Today my guest is Ivo Vlaev, who is a professor of behavioural science at Warwick Business School uh, at the University of Warwick. Ivo received a PhD in experimental psychology from the University of Oxford. Before going to Warwick, Ivo worked as a research fellow at University College London and senior lecturer at Imperial College London. He's got a track record of research in decision science, particularly in behavioural economics and in behaviour change. Ivo's research focuses on developing an integrated theory of behaviour change, which combines principles from psychology, neuroscience and economics. Ivo is also the co-author of the famous UK Cabinet Office Mindspace report, which provides a framework for designing effective policy, utilising the latest insights from behavioural science, also known as nudge theory. Ivo, welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science podcast. Thank you. I appreciate uh, giving me the time to speak about my modest persona. And uh, I like the introduction. It sounded like I would have written it myself. (laughs) Which, of course, you did. (laughs) Uh, Great. So, so, Ivo, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your journey to where you are now? Well, I mean, I started as an experimental psychologist um, working in, in a lab. I used to put people in a laboratory setting, uh, sometimes in a brain scan, uh, and trying to understand uh, why the bottle of human rationality is half empty. So I'm, I might not be the smartest behavioral scientist, but I was passionately curious about mm. human rationality. Uh, and um, so we, what we used to do is uh, 
test uh, different versions of decision tasks and observe how people react and what kind of decisions they make in mostly hypothetical situations and see what part of the brain lights up like a Christmas tree on Christmas night uh, and, and try this will help us infer what networks in the brain, uh, what mechanisms in the brain are influencing decisions people make. And as we can expect in such situations, from what we know from behavioral economics, it wasn't the prefrontal or the rational areas of the brain. It used to be the subcortical areas influencing emotional and uh, also habitual choices. And uh, what we found is that um, humans are largely automatic and subconscious in the way they make their choices. And uh, we could understand the decisions and predict decisions in the lab. And sometimes in the real world, when we translate this evidence, uh, and uh, later on, when the book Nudge came out in 2008, uh, I was curious whether all these subtle behavioral effects found in the lab translate in the real world. So I gradually moved from a blue sky, pure science, uh, to a messy real world research. Uh, and the work got messier when I started messing about with policymakers. Uh, and things got even dirty when I started working on business applications. Um, so uh, at the moment, uh, I work mostly in translational research, applying the insights uh, from behavioral science in, in the real-world setting. Uh, since then, uh, well, for the last 10 years, uh, I have been running trials in pretty much every behavioral domain, which gives me uh, the right to give opinions and make sweeping and justified statements about where our fascinating field is going. Right. Well, wow. What a, what a journey. And, and um, what, what was it made you take the, the, the messy leap from the blue sky thinking academia stuff and, and into the, the, the messy world as you, you, you described it? Well, my current role is at Warwick Business School. And um, before that, uh, I was at uh, University College London working uh, in a laboratory, uh, testing various ideas from behavioral economics and decision sciences, as I, as I said. When I moved to Imperial College, uh, this was my first uh, uh, lectureship, uh, I was in a medical school setting, so uh, I get a, close to people who actually work in the field facing various pragmatic challenges. And, um, uh, well, essentially, I moved gradually from the lab to the real world. In, in, in Imperial, I set, set up a, a group uh, with Paul Dolan and Ara Darzi. We're trying to understand how health service research works and how we can improve um, the, the work of clinicians and how we can improve the health of patients, which got me really fascinated uh, with applications. And uh, I wasn't actually quite certain whether the insights from the lab actually do translate in the real world because there's a lot of evidence um, coming out from, from lab, but we had very few real field trials uh, trying to see if these insights can actually really predict behavior, and most importantly, can we use them to actually influence choices and actions uh, in in health and finance and so on. And um, so, uh, from from Imperial College, long where I was working mostly in medical applications, I moved to Warwick Business School because I wanted to be closer to the heart of policy making and the business, so we can actually project our influence. Hence, the logo of uh, uh, Warwick Business School for change makers. And uh, so I just want to mention now uh, at uh, Warwick Business School, um, we are a group of behavioral scientists. We have a behavioral science group, which is the largest group in Europe, such group in Europe. And uh, so our group uh, brings together many disciplines, such as psychology, economics, and biology, to study human behavior and decision making. Our goal is linking theoretical and um, 
policy challenges in the social sciences with experimental methods and results from the natural sciences. So we produce and disseminate cutting-edge research. Uh, for example, four members of our group were cited in the scientific document justifying the Nobel Prize Committee's decisions to award the prize for economics to Richard Taylor in 2017. Uh, I'm one of these people. Uh, and we also translate research into practice by advising managers and policymakers about how to induce behavioral changes for better organizations and societies. So our group uh, works and partners with the behavioral units within the government around the world, different governments, uh, such, uh, in UK specifically, uh, the, the Behavioral Insights team. Uh, and uh, what we also have in Warwick University and what attracted me to this job especially was the thriving behavioral science community around the university. We have forged interdisciplinary collaborations such as joint master's degrees and behavioral summits and workshops. So this community impacts policymaking through educating the new generations of managers and leaders. Um, and we teach and, them... And so what- who, who, what type of managers and leaders are they from? Uh, from local authorities, from national government, are they from private businesses? Where do where do these people come from? From all these sources. So we have uh, um, people uh, doing all kinds of degrees uh, at the business school, but also we have a joint uh, master's degree uh, with uh, the Department of Economics and Psychology, uh, which is about behavioral. Uh, uh, it's a master's degree in psychological and economic sciences. Uh, uh, which essentially is about behavioral science, and mm-hmm. we have master students from uh, from government, from um, from the health service, uh, from the businesses, and of course we have the MBA, the business school, and various uh, master degrees in management. So we have all these students available to impact upon them. So we teach them important lessons. But what I'm really passionate about is we teach them about the importance of theory. Uh, we teach them that execution without understanding can be like having a hammer, but not knowing where to hit. So one of the founders of social psychology, Kurt Levin, um, famously said that there is nothing so practical as good theory. This is because good theory guides effective action and turns knowledge into wisdom. So um, so our appeal to all these uh, well, learners, um, mature students or younger students is let's work together to make policy making wiser. So I'm really excited about policy making, but also businesses as well. And is that what you're doing now? So is that the main sort of thrust of your role at the moment? Yes. Uh, so as you know, my research in behavioral change, which is the pretty much 80-90% of my current work, focuses on developing an integrated theory of behavioral change, which combines principles from psychology, economics, and other social sciences. So testing this theory involves developing and evaluating behavioral change interventions in various domains, such as health, finance, education, work, and environment. I really agree with the, the notion of bringing together and integrating those the theories of behavior change in psychology, neuroscience, economics, and bringing that to a business, to the business sort of world and the policy world. But how do you actually do that? What, what does this theory, this integrated theory, look like? How do you articulate it? A good theory is accurate, useful, explanatory, evidence-based, falsifiable, broadly applicable, and consistent within itself and with other acceptable theories. Uh, so there are a lot of theories out there, as many theories as the behavioral scientists, uh, yeah. uh, especially in psychology. In contrast, in economics, for example, there's only one theory, expected utility theory, and every researcher argues for and against it. But what we find in, um, in social science, especially in psychology, 
there are as many theories as, as, as scientists. It's a dog's dinner out there. So, so essentially what uh, we find originally when we started integrating these theories, and you mentioned Mindspace at the beginning, is we have so many different conceptual frameworks. They talk about the same uh, idea using different terms or about different ideas using the same terms. So it's quite confusing. So now we're creating a taxonomy of taxonomies uh, which integrates uh, the mechanisms of change the psychological mechanisms of change and techniques to influence the psychological mechanisms of change using a consistent and comprehensive language uh, and having appropriate labels and definitions for all of these constructs to avoid all these confusions. And, uh, and what is really important is to investigate innovative methods for developing and evaluating, evaluating behavioral change interventions in different domains, such as health, for example, professional practice, such as safety and quality of care, or patient behaviors, such as medication adherence, and lifestyle risk factors, such as diet and physical activity. Another domain that we work on applying this comprehensive theory of change is finance, uh, studying behaviors and influencing behaviors, such as motivating customers to manage their money more effectively, or effective design of financial products. So when we find that this theory enables us to actually understand behaviors and influence behaviors, we have a proof or evidence that we're on the right path to, towards a grand unified theory or gut of behavioral change. So that's what you're working towards is, is, is something similar to in physics, this sort of grand unified theory of, of how, to, how to apply this in all, all situations really, is it? Absolutely. Uh, what, that's what keeps me awake during the night and also applying <laughs> right. this theory. So, and, yeah, uh, yeah. so what we know from the systematic review and meta-analysis uh, of um, uh, applications and field trials and interventions is that using some theory is better than not theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, also what we find out from the evidence is that uh, more comprehensive theory is better than just a theory or a model. So Therefore, if you develop a very comprehensive theory to understand and influence people, that gives us the better chance to to design more effective and more sustainable interventions and policies to have a stronger impact. And um, yeah, I think that's what I'm going to pursue for the next few years of my research career. Okay, cool. And and one of the so so a lot of people have come on the show have talked about the combi method from from ucl where does this sit in in amongst that is this does this use all of that work the the uh, behavior change techniques and and the, the the theoretical domains framework or is it um is it separate to that is it complementary um how does it fit in the the, the combi model is um, a, g- a general model of what drives human behavior Mm-hmm. It's uh, the most comprehensive general framework of understanding behavior in terms of capabilities, opportunities, motivations, and capabilities, uh, psychological and physical, uh, motivations, uh, reflective and automatic, and mm-hmm. opportunities, uh, uh, physical and social. Uh, and this is the most general umbrella that we have. Uh, uh, but then all, all these constructs that I just uh, listed, they could be decomposed and deconstructed to their um, components, subcomponents. So, for example, take motivations, their reflective and automatic motivations. Mm. And, uh, um, and the, the bulk of behavioral change historically 
in policy making and in, in healthcare and finance in other domains of life has been focusing on human motivation. And um, traditionally, uh, behavioral change policies have tended to focus on providing economic or legal incentives or information to influence behavior. Uh, such interventions rely on influencing the way people consciously think about behavior. Uh, we can change motivations and intentions, therefore, we change behavior accordingly. So these interventions can only get us so far. Uh, we need to know more about, for example, different types of automatic motivations, so even different types of reflective motivations. So take smoking as an example. When, when you raise tax on tobacco uh, to reduce the uh, level of smoking, we, we actually may also increase the proportion of smokers using potentially harmful smuggled tobacco because we only account for different specific type of motivation, reflective motivation, but with automatic, different types of automatic motivation can drive smokers into behaviors such as looking for illegal drugs. Uh, um, and also what's really important about uh, uh, decomposing these uh, constructs into their components, subcomponents of different types of psychological mechanisms of motivation, for example, which you can actually understand better the impact on different types of populations in society. For example, take educational campaigns. They might facilitate attempts to quit smoking, but they might also further widen the dis disparities in the prevalence of smoking between higher and lower educated individuals. Because it might be the case that lower educated individuals are more impulsive, more driven by the automatic motivations. Therefore, we need to really, uh, when we talk about combi, we need to actually uh, understand the different types of psychological mechanisms under the umbrella in terms such as automatic motivations, reflective motivations. Mm. And um, so given the, the limitations of traditional approaches, policies that change the context or nudge people in particular directions have captured the imaginations of policymakers. Um, uh, behavioral science um, provides new ways of thinking about the barriers and drivers of a range of behaviors uh, and uh, the attractiveness of using behavioral insights is in part due to the perceived potential to offer low-cost, non-paternalistic solutions to societal changes, influencing different mechanisms driving automatic motivations, uh, for example. And, um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, one of the questions I had, because, I mean, obviously this tends towards, you, you've mentioned a few times, the, the sort of nudge theory, and, and government being particularly enamoured with nudge, which is, you know, understandable considering the um, the out the outcomes that can be achieved through the, the level of input that you, you would require because obviously it's at a large scale and therefore um, you can you can have a big impact with a, a much much sort of better cost or a much lower cost. Um, but does how far does nudge go? What are the limitations of that in, in terms of um, can can nudge be used in complex lifestyle um, change or do, do do you need something? Um, is nudge just part of that, and it, you need sort of a broader set of, of um, interventions or, or um, upstream and downstream interventions? Of course, nudge is only part of the whole picture. And this was the misunderstanding from the very beginning, which attracted a lot of fire from um, people working in healthcare, in health behavioral change, and so on, who actually have spent their life. Uh, developing interventions uh, to influence people and creating frameworks and models of behavioral change. Uh, and they immediately started saying, nudge is fine, but it's not enough. We need more comprehensive approach. Because of challenges that we faced in, in, in the nudge approach, from 
traditional approaches in health behavioral change. Now, what we are doing as a profession, we design behavioral change interventions, usually, usually using structured causal modeling framework. We uh, understand behavior as being influenced by behavioral determinants. These behavioral determinants are psychological mechanisms, such as beliefs, attitudes, perception of social norms, abilities, emotions, habits, skills, and so on. These behavioral determinants are in turn influenced by behavioral change techniques. These behavioral change techniques could be some nudge techniques or it could be some other techniques that we know from the literature, such as goal setting, uh, planning, education, uh, incentives, providing feedback, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we try to understand what are the barriers and drivers, what are the behavioral change techniques that influence uh, psychological barriers and drivers or determinants, and how they influence behavior in turn. Then behavior can influence physiological and biochemical processes in the body, for example, when you talk about health. And then in turn, these this processes can influence disease outcomes. So we have techniques influencing psychological determinants of behavior. Then you have the behavior, which influences physiological processes, which in turn influence disease outcomes. So this is the structural framework that we use to design interventions and to understand behavior. So in this process, we have a theoretical approach to intervention design and implementation, which we know promotes interventions, effectiveness, and sustainability. So, why a range of frameworks exist to help interventionists take such theoretical approach, these frameworks are usually specialized within a specific discipline or topic. So, many health psychologists tend to use the behavioral change wheel, for example, uh, uh, and many behavioral economists tend to use decision-making biases literature and theoretical frameworks such as MySpace. So, with regard to the dual process theory, uh, which is known in, in many circles in psychology, the theories underlying the behavioral change wheel are largely, uh, they largely target the reflective psychological process, while theories underlying decision biases literature largely target the automatic process. Unfortunately, the relationship between the reflective and automatic psychological mechanisms is not well understood yet. This has promoted a piecemeal approach into behavioral change. Integrating those frameworks overcomes this problem. For example, uh, the the behavioral change wheel uh, has created to help interventionists diagnose behavioral change barriers and select appropriate interventions. And uh, it helps us with diagnosing behavioral problems by using the determinants described by the COMB model. And then... In turn, when we understand these determinants, we have a map which essentially maps all all the behavioral change techniques from the literature on these determinants that are part of the COMB model. What we're doing at the moment, we're trying to, in my group, we're trying to add to this uh, literature different mechanisms and techniques, the so-called niche techniques, from the behavioral economics literature. So just yeah. mind space. Yeah. I have a few questions. Um, I fear 
I'm not as bright as most of our listeners because uh, most of them are, are um, PhDs or working at you know high level in, in government and stuff. So I, I just want to double check I understand what you're saying, Ivo. Um, so at a broad level, is what you're saying that your your unified theory is actually bringing together um, the 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 behavioural economics literature and the sort of health psychology literature, for example, the combi stuff that's you're saying is more more reflective motivation based and then the automatic motivation uh, based literature coming from the behavioral economic side and then you're layering interventions into those and trying to understand which of those would actually create the most effective interventions yes is that bro- is that broadly right i mean i know there's obviously a lot of nuance around that it is exactly true by bringing together all these concepts we can facilitate conversations across disciplines and also enable more comprehensive analysis of the published interventions right okay and and, and you know that you mentioned that there's this sort of uh, all the 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 place where you're sort of bringing all that stuff together is that is that somewhere people can go and access and, and see your work in terms of where how you've brought together the the and, and, and overlaid the behavioral economics with the sort of health psychology literature or is that is that part of your um intellectual property that you're sort of creating stuff out of is it something people can go and see Yes, we have uh, various papers that are published uh, in the literature that discuss these issues and uh, offer some solutions. Uh, we haven't got the Grant Unified Theory yet, and the various teams in different universities, such as the uh, UCL Group, or the Center for Behavioral Change, where they're developing another uh, unified theory. And mm-hmm. um, we're talking across groups at the moment, uh, trying to find commonalities and uh, opportunities to collaborate in this endeavor. Uh, but a lot of these uh, ideas are already out there in the public space um, uh, on my website and uh, some of the papers that I published for the last five years uh, discussing the topic and trying to find a solution and to also publish uh, in a language that is accessible to the wider audience and also to help, help policymakers and, and practitioners. I think I think that's the key. And that, really that's the key of this show is is interviewing people from academic from academia interviewing people from industry and from health and public health and making sure that that we aren't we don't have this chasm between <coughs> what what academics know and what people on the ground are, are being able to do which is where i think mindspace was really interesting and, and and just for those who don't know what mindspace is um could you give us a a, a very brief overview of what mindspace is and, and why it matters to people in industry academia and public health well in public policy uh, my research focuses on helping policymakers to think about ways of supplementing the more traditional tools of government with policy that helps to encourage behavioral change so applying behavioral insights support governments um, and different government departments in designing policies that better reflects how people really behave. And, and in doing so, also enables the government to reduce regulatory burdens on, on business and society and also achieve its goals as cheaply as and effectively as possible. So I, I, about 10 years ago, I co-authored the, the famous UK Cabinet Office Mindspace report which provides a framework for designing effective policy utilizing the latest insights from behavioral economics or behavioral science more, more broadly, uh, which is also known as niche theory. So the report was uh, the basis for actually establishing the, the behavioral insights team at the cabinet office, uh, the very first behavioral insights team in government in the world. Uh, and uh, 
Its aim is to help the UK government develop and apply lessons from behavioral science to public policymaking. Uh, so nowadays, many government departments and public and private organizations in UK and abroad also use MySpace as their guiding framework. Uh, and I have been working with uh, some of them in development of interventions and policies. So, for example, uh, my work uh, on using behavioral economics or nudging to boost tax compliance, which was conducted uh, for Her Majesty Revenue and Customs, was cited in the scientific background document accompanying Nobel Prize Committee's awarding of the Prize for Economic Science to Richard Taylor in 2017. And um, so uh, different governments across the world have been looking to incorporate insights on behavioral economics in policy and uh, and. Uh, the UK government is particularly keen to use these approaches, and this was true uh, of different governments uh, and uh, administrations, the previous administration, the current coalition, uh, the, the coalition government, and the, and the current government as well. And uh, what we found at the time when we were designing the report is despite a plethora of reports on behavioral science, behavioral insights, behavioral change, they all fail in a large part to provide operating framework for practitioners to use. Um, mm-hmm. uh, this is because there are dozens of proven heuristics and associated biases that we have been shown to be su- humans are susceptible to um, uh, in the literature, but there are a lot, and it's difficult to actually use them as a tool. So you have to become a behavioral scientist almost, uh, graduate behavioral scientist to actually have the time and the, the knowledge background to understand the literature, to search the literature and apply it to solve policy problem, uh, which is why the government asked me to kind of uh, classify and categorize different biases and create a tool or, or a checklist which uh, practitioners can use off the shelf when they're facing behavioral problem to diagnose and to actually create an intervention. So that's why with uh, David Harbour and Paul Dolan and other colleagues, we decided to get together and uh, create such a tool. And this is how MindSpace was born, which is an acronym, essentially um, providing a classification for the most effective ways to influence human automatic motivation. So we know the combi model, we have capabilities, which are knowledge and skills and physical uh, abilities. Uh, On one side, then you have the opportunities in the environment, social and, and physical, and then motivations are reflected in automatic. And the heavy lifting in human behavioral change, we found out, was motivation. But then within the motivation, we, what we also found is that human behavior is largely influenced by the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there's a very famous uh, quote from uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, uh, in his Nobel Prize speech, which is, it turns out that the environmental effects on behavior are a lot stronger than most people expect. Mm, and, yes. and this is driven by the automatic, this is driving automatic motivations. Uh, and uh, so we knew that at the time, and therefore we needed to understand how human automatic motivation works. This is doing the heavy lifting in behavioral change. Uh, and then we create a, a tool that we can use in practice to influence automatic motivations, which is why we design. Uh, and publish the MindSpace framework. It's interesting, and and one of the um, so so one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was whether or not you think that um, behaviour change or behavioural science is being used effectively in your industry at the moment. And that I mean, the question itself is interesting. And in as much as what is your industry? Is it academia primarily? And, and 
let, let's ask, is it being used effectively in policy and particularly on the ground so that people can actually receive interventions that have been well thought through, um, even if they're upstream interventions? Well, the art of influencing people has been practiced for millennia, right? So there's yes. nothing new in, in this idea. However, there is certainly something new in what we know about how best to do it. So what uh, we found by research in behavioral sciences is that approaches based on information and education do not actually work so well. And policymakers already started to understand this. For example, um, we don't need to get all the information that we can and think about how to use it later, which is the usual approach in, in in administration. Let's create and pile up information that supports or rejects certain ideas we have or gives a clue how, what we can do to change behavior and then we deal with it later. Or uh, like what in climate change. Sorry. What, what type of things do you mean uh, there? Have you got any examples? Well, taking uh, climate change. Two, two and a half thousand scientists say, for example, that, we, that we've caused global warming and uh, policymakers they still want second opinion, so to say. Right, yeah. Uh, so, so we need to use different approach to influence policymakers and citizens at large. Uh, so instead of uh, traditionally, as used to be the case, using coercion or hardcore economic incentives, we can use persuasion, trying to see things from my own point of view, uh, which is fine, more like a reflective persuasion, but we need to actually... Uh, load up the tools of behavioral science or behavioral economics, specifically the nudge approach, which actually targets automatic motivations to increase the impact of our interventions. And policymakers are starting to understand the importance of this new approach and use it in practice. In the UK, after creating the Behavioral Insights team in 2010, the government has continued to take a particular interest in using these approaches in order to encourage and enable people to make better choices. Uh, the UK Department of Public Health and Social Care, for example, also declared at the time uh, that they would explore nudging people in the right direction rather than restricting their choices. So when Public Health England was set up in 2013, it established its own Behavioural Insights team uh, the Public Health England Behavioural Insights, uh, other Western countries, including France, the Netherlands, Australia, and the United States, have also explored the potential of behavioural science to improve effectiveness of public policies. Uh, so behavioural insights initiatives now exist in many government departments. Uh, these departments are tasked with finding low-cost ways of using behavioural science to change behaviour at the population level, and these recent developments have popular, popularised languages of nudges which we're trying to change at the moment. We want to use more broader terms, behavioral science, and create a common language that is founded on evidence. So since then, several government behavioral insights team and nudge units have been established across the globe. Uh, and many of uh, these units typically consisting of policy experts, economists, behavioral scientists, psychologists, and data analysts were initially positioned at the very senior level in government, including offices of presidents, of prime ministers, as well as Supreme Courts, uh, in the Middle East, for example. Recently, a more focused type of units operating within ministries are emerging. And the number of such units with dedicated institutional setups has exceeded 50 inside governments, according to OECD report. 
2018, such uh, uh, accounting does not take into consideration many governmental teams involved in applying behavioral insights in their policy challenges that do not call themselves behavioral insights units. Similar initiatives have been launched within academia and non-government organizations, as well as the, pri- as well as the private sector. Uh, for example, interestingly, uh, in the Arab region, where I work from time to time, Qatar set up the first nudge unit uh, before development in 2016, which was uh, incubated within the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy. Uh, and and uh, sports and healthy lifestyles are at the heart of uh, the before development focus areas. But also Lebanon and Kuwait followed suit and established their own behavioral setups. Nudge Lebanon as a non-governmental organization and the Kuwait Policy Appraisal Lab, uh, KPAL, within the Central Secretariat for the Supreme Council for Planning and Development. So there are a lot of interesting developments around the globe um, within the policy and business, trying to incorporate and innovate using behavioral science at the moment. And I mean, those are the those are the big sort of national organisations. I was in a an event this morning with um, a local government, uh, a county council government, with a behavioural insights team, and um, focused on um, making making hyper local policy reflect those types of principles as well. So it's sort of it's probably a lot wider than than we know um, because it's happening at a local level now as well. Absolutely. I mean, for example, I was uh, involved personally. Uh, in um, helping to set up the first, <clears throat> the very first behavioral insights team uh, within local government, which is um, Croydon Council, mm-hmm. and uh, it was with the support of EY, uh, we set it up a few years ago. And uh, since then, they've been running trials in local government in dozens of different domains and areas. The, the usual ones, uh, debt collection, uh, but also protecting environment, health, and so on. Even actually improving the effectiveness and efficiency of uh, local public administration within the council. Dozens of applications. We have been doing work with uh, Islington Council Mm -hmm. in various domains as well. And uh, other local boroughs in London are interested in applying behavioral science. The Midlands Combined Authority in Birmingham, they're uh, strongly interested in using some behavioral insights. I've been working in local government for, for the last few years, and there are so many interesting examples there. But uh, more generally, I think uh, behavioral science is taking over the world like fire in policymaking and business, which is great news because we need to understand the nature of human nature in order to design f- effective and efficient policies in government as well in business yeah no you're absolutely right and it, and it does seem to be i don't know if it's because i'm i'm more interested in it but it certainly seems to be um in more and more places um over the last couple of years certainly um and, and places like organizations like the bsphn are a good good example of that the fact that the, the bsphn are so popular and growing every day is of indicative of the fact that behavioral science is becoming more and more ubiquitous across uh, if it's if it's ubiquitous across local government then it must be sort of well embedded in business by now i would imagine indeed um for example take um, 
uh, an agency like Ogilvy, uh, which is an advertisement mm, yes, agency yes. within the WPP uh, corporation family, uh, they have behavioral uh, insights units or divisions. Uh, Ogilvy Change, uh, for example, also in health, uh, Ogilvy Health, uh, we have the, the Brain Science Center applying insights in business, designing uh, communications and advertisements and PR strategies informed by scientific insights of what drives human behavior. Swiss Re, uh, the big reinsurance uh, company, they also have a behavioral uh, insights unit uh, helping to design more uh, effective um, insurance policies, more helping to engage more effectively with uh, customers and support customers in their journey, enabling them to make better uh, decisions about insurance related to health, life, and so on. And, and, and what are the best practices you've come across? What, what are the things that you've seen that you've, you've thought are the best things, the best applications of behavioral science, um, Ivo, in, 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 either, in any of the fields that you're sort of working across? Well, so worst case examples, they usually have specific features which could be summarized by an acronym in our industry, okay. behavioral change industry. Um, known as ISLAGIA principle. ISLAGIA is actually an acronym which, when you unpacked, is a sentence that reads, it sounded like a good idea at the time. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. sounded like a good idea at the time. That's how many policies and behavioral change interventions are designed using um, just brainstorming, um, it's Something that's common sense. That's what we do here. That's how we do things here. Uh, that's what has been working in the past. Sometimes even worse, ideology, political yeah. or more ideology yeah. and so on. Um, and it sounds like a good idea at the time. Sometimes works because we hear various uh, news from, uh, from um, media, from behavioral science, from practitioners, and then we try immediately to apply. But that leads to a piecemeal approach. Now, there's no point of giving uh, examples here because uh, I don't want to intimidate somebody. Um, and uh, it's not politically correct as well. Uh, sometimes people try to do the best thing and that's what they do, uh, having the best intentions. So talking about the best examples, and usually they have another specific feature uh, as well, which is essentially using a comprehensive theory and good methodology. And uh, as I said, we need to understand all the potential barriers and drivers that prevent people from doing what they're supposed to be doing, leaving no stone unturned on the pathway to understand what prevents people, what are the barriers, and what potentially could drive them into behavioral change. That's why we need comprehensive and systematic theory of behavior, mm, yeah. right? To understand what are the behavioral determinants. Then yeah. once we know the determinants, well, we need to have a comprehensive uh, framework of behavioral change techniques, some of them are nudges, some of them are other techniques, such as goal setting, feedback, planning, and so on, to influence these determinants and behavior. And then we need to have a broader theory of change to actually be able to map all these influences into a causal framework from the behavior going to a physiological process in the, in the body, if it needs to be, mm -hmm. and then to outcomes such as disease or well-being 
or finance or environmental pollution, congestion, educational achievement, and so on. These are outcomes that we want to achieve. Ultimately, we have outcomes that are influenced by behaviors, which in turn are influenced by psychological or other determinants, behavioral determinants, which in turn are influenced by, by behavioral change techniques, uh, mm-hmm. policies more broadly. So we need to understand this causal pathway and to use comprehensive theories and tools to actually work at every level of this pathway. And also when we're trying to understand what the behavioral change determinants or behavioral determinants, we need to have a solid sound methodology, different methods to understand uh, the determinants, for example, or the influences of human behavior. Uh, And And can uh, you think of an example of where where you've seen that done really well? We've seen when people actually use uh, a combination of, uh, say, mixed method approach using uh, ethnographic uh, research, anthropological research, observing people in their natural, habi- natural habitat, almost like David Attenborough observing the species yeah. in its natural yeah. habitat, uh, also using uh, interviews and surveys to understand what people uh, are doing and why they're doing it and why they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Also looking at the literature, uh, systematic or rapid reviews to, to figure out what's already out there, what has worked before. Maybe there is a solution of this problem uh, in terms of a policy or technique that works already. Um, interviewing stakeholders as well, expert opinion, brainstorming, and somewhere in this pool of evidence, we can triangulate it and find a sweet spot of uh, the intervention mix that is most likely to work. And then once we know that, what is the uh, ideal intervention mix or choice uh, here, um, when we design the intervention, we need to engage with the target population and other stakeholders uh, we invite them to participate in some kind of a workshop. Uh, and then during the workshop, for example, the, we, the attenders can learn about or discuss and offer up their questions and comments and concerns regarding the most promising interventions. Uh, and the participants in such workshops or focus groups will also be asked to, uh, to complete a survey in which they rate the impressions of each selected intervention according to what we call a PEACE criteria. We have another acronym here. We love acronyms in, in behavioral yeah. and other sciences. Yeah. A PEACE stands for affordability, practicality, effectiveness, or cost effectiveness, acceptability, side effects, and safety, and equity. So a PEACE criteria. So we have a comprehensive approach to evaluating, in the first instance, the potential interventions that we want to test in the field, and then we can modify accordingly after uh, receiving feedback on each of these uh, piece criteria, affordability, practicality, effectiveness, acceptability, side effects, and equity. And then we can, of course, run a small uh, uh, feasibility study uh, to learn whether the intervention works in practice in the field. Uh, can we run it without testing for, uh, for effect sizes, just to see whether you can deliver, can recruit, um, what is the retention rate uh, in the intervention? And then from there, we can modify again. Then we do a small pilot to have some effect sizes on the, on the basis of which to do a power analysis. Uh, and then we have a proper uh, full-blown trial, randomized trial using different types of methodology, different types of randomizations, and depending on the problem at hand or the barriers we, say, we see in the field. This is the solid methodology that practitioners and interventionists and governments and businesses should use it ideally. Of course, in practice, we might not have the resources for doing so, but at least we can actually achieve our best given the constraints on resources we have using these types of methodologies. 
that, so that was actually a, an answer to the, the following question, um, which is about translating it in the real world. So people people working in government or um, people who are designing interventions should take that approach. Do you, can you do you have an example of where you've seen that done really well? Like a, a direct example of someone you've worked with who's really applied that, or or, or know of that, that that has applied that that principle that you just described, and it's and and it's had a really positive outcome. Well, there are various uh, examples in the health uh, literature uh, in behavioural change in healthcare. We usually apply this this methodology and the, the examples published already in the literature in, in health behavioural change. And of course, in, in policy making, uh, this is extremely difficult to achieve because of lack of resources and usually have to do what we know best, which is review the literature uh, and... Uh, engage with um, uh, people and professionals to understand the problem from different angles and create a pilot. Uh, in, for example, in, uh, in one of my trials uh, that showed actually the biggest effect on tax repayments so far, um, we, we found from the literature review uh, uh, with uh, Michael Household, uh, who was running the trial for HMRC at the time, he's uh, one of the directors of the Behavior Insights team, um, and uh, we found that uh, people keep positive image, self-image by convincing themselves the harmful action, not paying tax, is an omission due to forgetting, postponing, and so on. Um, and uh, so when... As opposed to a deliberate action of avoiding tax. Exactly. Okay. So, uh, so when uh, people are faced uh, with the message that we created, which was communicate to them that they're making an active choice or commission of not paying tax, their ego is damaged in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, they become motivated to do the alternative, good action, and pay their tax. So we tested that uh, insight in, in a trial, which worked really well. And I also replicated this trial uh, in different ways. Um, the original trial was created to improve the repayment of income tax for HMRC and delivered amazing results. And then I tested that with Croydon Council, with the behavioral science unit there, to I- increase the repayment of uh, council tax. And it worked really well. Uh, and then I tested the same idea in um, a trial to motivate people uh, to repay their loans with a private debt collection company. Again, mm-hmm. achieved uh, really good results. So we can see how some insight from the literature based on solid evidence from the lab, in particular the idea that uh, uh, people convince themselves or frame their harmful action uh, as an omission instead of commission, commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then when you communicate back to them that now you cannot excuse yourself, now you're making active choice not to do the right thing, they suddenly feel their ego hurt and they, they suddenly want to actually repair the psychological damage and as a consequence do the right thing. Works really well. Great. Okay. Well, I want to move us on a little bit now um, to, to find out what it is you're most excited or curious <coughs> about in behavior change or behavioral science right now. Well, I'm really excited about the new developments uh, in, the, in behavioral science, um, which are about 
understanding the system within which behavior change takes place. It's very important to conceptually represent a system and illustrating how events in one part of it affects other parts, usually in a form of diagram. This, this helps get insight in the underlying structure of a messy, complex situation uh, and uh, identify opportunities to intervene in the, in the modeled system to influence its behavior to, uh, and map uh, can be used as a basis for quantitative systems modeling. So every human behavior happens in a system. And uh, in order to avoid unintended consequences, for example, one behavior influencing another, which influences the outcome in a negative way, um, we need to understand the complex in the systems. All behaviors exist within a complex systems, a multitude of interdependent elements within a connected whole. Networks of cause and effect relationships, influences might not be nonlinear, uh, and feedback loops, positive and negative, uh, for example, change in smoking legislation changes smoking behavior. Emergence, another property of a system, large entities, patterns and regularities arise through interactions among simpler entities. For example, culture of an organization is an emergent property. There is adaptation effect. Systems are responsive, can change it, uh, itself in response to information. For example, impact of tobacco legislation on acceptability of vaping. Uh, the elements may act uh, unaware of their full system based only on partial locally available information, for example, local nutrition practices. So system modeling approaches are very important in, in when we select behaviors. So a behavioral system map is, is a causal loop diagram that seeks to explain behavior. So uh, we need to create a behavioral system map, which is a causal loop diagram that seeks to explain human behavior. So behavioral systems maps explore all possible interactions amongst key variables in a situation, explicitly incorporating the role of human behavior in these situations. So in this approach, we need to distinguish three different types of entity. One is the actors, which is a person organization, like a builder, domestic energy advisor, a patient, a doctor, a homeowner, a government body, or a mortgage lender. Then we have a behavior which is an action that is directly uh, or indirectly observable, um, making a decision to buy a certain specific financial product, um, to um, run in the park, to purchase uh, healthy or low-carb uh, food, uh, programming a boiler, attending a course, and so on. Then, in addition to actors and behaviors, we have influence, something that affects whether a behavior is likely to happen in the system um, for example, communication skills, uh, awareness of cost-benefit of an action, motivation, need for space, market or building regulations, uh, uh, or a, a checklist helping patients to set goals, and so on. So these behavioral system maps are extremely useful devices that allow us to, to specify or select behaviors that we need to target and what kind of changes we need to make in the system to achieve maximal impact and avoid unintended side effects. Another purpose is to challenge existing perspectives and mental models about the relationship between variables and also to prevent coming to a premature conclusion about the structure of a system driving the problem. Uh, and uh, 
this behavioral system maps also encourage people to think in multiple dimensions and systematically explore cause and effect relationships. So uh, they're not ending themselves, but rather a way of interrogating a problem area and can help clarify and resolve uncertainties. For example, by collecting data and enriching discussion challenging uh, existing perspectives and theories, avoiding um, habitual or common sense solutions or solutions based on ideology or random insight or um, and so on. And, uh, and also they increase ownership of the problem between the stakeholders because uh, um, they create uh, conditions for more effective solutions and so on. And, and is this something, because I've had some experience in this area, is this something that you think that um, a local authority, for example, should be able to do right now, even if they have guidance, because it it is quite complex to to sort of ensure that you're not just reflecting biases into a into a, a different tool, just a, a systems map, um, because it is quite it is quite difficult to to do that. I think if you're a lay if you're a lay person and you're you're not used to doing that type of work, do you think that you need expert sort of support to do it? Of course, you need expert support to do it, and uh, we have the expertise on tap. We have the Behavioral uh, Science Network in Public Health, for example, which was created by Public Health England, Tim Chapman, the Behavioral Insights team there, and supported by various experts. Um, and uh, we have uh, uh, experts available on tap, especially we even uh, create a list of experts that can help, uh, for example, public health practitioners with insights and expertise in behavioral science when needed. Um, so, and I also, I don't what, think it's actually... Where is that list? What, do you mean the one on the BSPHN or is there some other list? It's, it's available. Uh, we have a, the, we've published a strategy for behavioral and social science in, in, uh, in public health uh, as part of this document, uh, which is available online. We have a list of experts and access to, to evidence, access to, to materials and so on. So that, that this is this is not a problem to find experts, uh, and also but also we need, uh, uh, of course, practitioners to to learn about behavioral science and uh, about systems thinking in general and be able to apply it themselves. Uh, so and it's not difficult. Uh, so we need to consider whose behavior we need to change, what behaviors are important, what are the influences on that behavior, how they interact, and there's simple uh, systems that. And could be created here. So take, take hand uh, washing, for example. Wash hands with sanitizers. Uh, people might not wash their hands in hospitals and public venue uh, and, uh, because they forget to wash or not knowing how to wash. Uh, this is the behavioral barriers we find out. Uh, and, and this is quite important problem now, nowadays, given the uh, coronavirus and uh, the, the going around and we, uh, we need to prevent it uh, as best as we can. For example, hand hygiene is one of the ways to prevent, but also to, to stop the hospital-acquired infections, one of the most effective ways is to actually uh, to test, uh, ask people to, uh, to wash their hands uh, in hospitals. Yeah, in fact, you're more likely to die hospital-acquired infections sometimes than the treatment or the illness itself. Uh, so we need to really improve hand hygiene in, in hospitals and public spaces. So what prevents hand hygiene? What are the behavioral influences or determinants? Usually it's about forgetting or not knowing how to do it. And um, so creating a small system is not difficult. For example, who needs to do that? Patients, doctors, and nurses. Uh, what is also important that influence hand washing is availability of sanitizer. 
and forgetting and not knowing and so on. So uh, and that's a very simple system of interactions. But then we can actually expand. For example, availability of sanitizer itself uh, could be influenced by uh, in a system mapping uh, process uh, or diagram by uh, somebody filling up the sanitizer or the dispenser. That's another uh, note in the network. And then who needs to do that? A cleaner. So we need to create a, a little uh, arrow from a cleaner to the square uh, with the label fuel, sanitizer, and dispenser. Then uh, another arrow that leads to this uh, element is a lack of time, for example. Uh, this, uh, and then lack of time by some professional, such as cleaner, to fill the sanitizer. Uh, and uh, lack of time could be influenced itself by no budget for agency staff or, or multiple staff of sick, for example, during flu, cold season. So as you can see, we have like seven, eight different nodes here in this system that could be knocked up by, by anybody, really. You don't need a, a lot of expertise to create uh, such system map to understand uh, what influences the uh, problem or behavior. Yeah, I, I agree you don't need someone to, to someone an expert to help design some of that stuff but I, I think what what it, it my experience certainly is that you need to be you need to triangulate information so that you, you the information that you gain from observation is very different to questionnaires which is very different to focus groups um you know and and other forms of, of collecting information um because like you said a lot of people act automatically they act on habit and so um observation is often a, a really useful way of trying to sort of mine into what potentially could be part of the system that people don't net recognize as part of the system and the other thing is that 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 system needs um to have the the flexibility in it for failure so it needs to have an opportunity to be tested and then to let it fail and to question what parts of it didn't work because there are habitual things that we didn't see coming or whatever. So it sort of needs to have that iteration process built within it. Um, and I think that's important for, for um, policymakers or whoever's trying to solve this issue that whoever's trying to solve this issue, it needs to be, it needs, they need to be cognizant of the fact that it probably won't work exactly right first time. And it needs time to fail in certain places for you to learn the really the really crucial information is actually where it fails um, so that you can iterate the experiment. And I, and I think that's where we need to be really, really clear with um, people who are in charge of designing these types of, well, not the people who are designing these, these um, information gathering sessions, whatever we're calling them, probably know that, that that's, that's required, but it's managing the expectations of, you know, the managers in that department who want this, they're, they're adopting this new system that they're really, you know, they've been, been, it's been talked up, it's academically rigorous, and it's a really good way of, of um, creating a whole system around a behavior, not just focusing on the behavior itself. But they do need to have their expectations managed to the extent that they know that it's not necessarily going to work straight away, and it's actually going to be a process of change, not just here's the change, now go off and, and implement it, and that's mm -hmm. it. Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. Uh, and uh, we need to facilitate this process um, as experts, we need to talk to, to practitioners and help them um, understand how systems change and how we can test the systems. And sometimes uh, the different system levels and boundaries, we don't need to have a global macro system maps, which are very difficult and uh, convoluted and complicated um, 
and specify the relationship across and between contexts such as the foresight abistima for example yes yeah. um, which put a lot of people off i mean exactly. amazing document but puts a lot of people off when they read it because they just think jesus how could i possibly engage with that level of complexity exactly so my the example i just gave with hand hygiene it's not a macro level system map as you can think about we have um, meso level system maps which specify the relationship between actors within a specific context like a care home obesity in local community and also we have micro level system maps as well that could be even more useful and uh, applicable and easy to, to create uh, this uh, micro level system map specify the relationship between actors influences and behaviors for a particular issue within a particular context like a hand washing beside the bed of a patient uh, so practitioners might choose to focus on one of these levels and move up or down depending on how the thinking and mapping develops, as you just said. Great stuff. Okay. Um, so, so finally, um, I've, I just wanted to find out where people can go to find out a little bit more about your your work. Everything is available or on the, my webpage, on Google Scholar. We have uh, um, information posted on our behavioral science group, Warwick Business School. If you go to a <laughs> Center for Behavioral Change at the University College London. There's plenty of information available there. And also the Behavioral Insights team, um, they have um, numerous reports and briefs that communicate uh, the trials, um, mm -hmm. summarize the evidence, um, comment on what works in different situations. So everything is out there. But these are the three main sources I would start with if I want to know more about uh, the applications of behavioral science in behavioral change. Okay, brilliant. And, and do you, what about you personally? Do you, do you use uh, social media? Can people get hold of you on there or uh, LinkedIn, things like that? I wish I had the luxury of time to afford this, uh, but I'm planning to go online soon. At the moment, okay. uh, people can always uh, send an email and I'm happy to respond if... Okay, and that's on your, on your site, on the Warwick University site, is it? Absolutely. I'm always looking for new opportunities to collaborate with practitioners, policymakers, businesses, and other academics. Uh, I always uh, need to find more uh, from what works in, in other people's jobs. And uh, it's a mutual creature of art, the science of behavioral change. Uh, so we all need to work together. To yes, the best. absolutely. Well, um, thank you very much for your time. Um, I've it's been fascinating chatting to you, and I've really loved hearing your take on uh, all the different sort of all the different areas of the behavioural sciences, but particularly your your focus on bringing together the the um, reflective and automatic motivation work and and merging the um, behavioural economics in, because I think it's an area that's really sort of fruitful in terms of particularly it's often applied to the nudge side but actually there are lots of things you can learn in intervention design we do it a lot in the in the in the um interventions that we design um so it's fascinating yeah. to hear about and um i'm sure that everyone will have really enjoyed listening to your uh, to your take and your experiences of applying this in the real world so thanks so much for your time thank you very much for the opportunity and i'm looking forward uh, to continue when something new comes up i'll let you know so we have another one great stuff thank you again there to professor ivo vlaev who i think you'll agree has given a really good overview of uh, an interesting career in uh, behavioral science working across industry academia and also in policy 
As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have a, another podcast coming out in the next couple of weeks with uh, Professor Susan Mickey and Dr. Nizreen Alwan talking about long COVID. So make sure you check that one out. Um, we'll be back again next month with another interesting guest as well who's worked in the field of changing people's behaviour in the real world. But in the meantime, don't forget that you can join the BSPHN on www.bsphn.org.uk. And it's only £25 if you're working or £10 if you're a student or not working at the moment. The benefits that you get from that are discounted fees for events, workshops and CPD sessions, access to professionals from a range of different fields. You can access regular publications and see footage from all the recent events and presentations. You can also sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change and on running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it. If you enjoyed this podcast, can you just go on to iTunes for me and, and do me a big favour and leave a, uh, a review because it really actually helps people decide whether or not they want to spend their time listening to the show I should mention that we've also released a new podcast, a sister show called Real World Public Mental Health and this is in partnership with the BSPHN, Public Health England and numerous other partners uh, and you can check that out on our uh, the BSPHN website, so if you go to the BSPHN website you can see both podcasts there with all the details of the show. The first one is with Dr Jonathan Campion who's talking about the, um, the, the large-scale effects of um, public mental health, particularly throughout COVID. So go and check that out. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to tell your friends about it, please do. You can get hold of me on um, Twitter at Stu underscore King underscore HH. Uh, you could also find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, stay safe, look after each other, and we'll look forward to catching you on the next show. Mm-hmm.